Hi, everybody. Great to have you with us here on LJN Radio. I'm Tim Muma, and it's time for another edition of Myth versus Reality on Moving Up the Ladder. We're taking another look at some business phrases and beliefs that you might see or hear from time to time. And we're welcoming back a gentleman who isn't shy about giving us his honest, colorful opinions. His name is Ron Baker. He's also a radio host, hosts the show The Soul of Enterprise, which you can actually find on iTunes along with LJN Radio episodes. Aran is also the author of six best-selling books and the founder of Verisage Institute. And as I mentioned, he always brings us his knowledgeable and experienced insight to the show. Ron, thanks once again for coming on LGN Radio. Happy to be here, Tim. Thank you. Well, last time we chatted, we went through some myths and realities of business. We didn't have as much time maybe as we had hoped, so we're back to try to hammer out some more of these. And I wanted to start off with one that I think is kind of a common thing you might hear and one that uh, a phrase people will utter from time to time, and that's the idea that business is a science. Myth or reality to you? (laughs) Oh, I think this is a huge myth, Tim. It (laughs) reminds me of political science. I don't think there's a bigger oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it. This idea that just because something has numbers mm-hmm. in it, it's a science. This was kind of known amongst philosophers as logical positivism, right? Because there are numbers in math, we think it's scientific. Right. Great economist by the name of Friedrich Hayek called it scientism. <laughs> and it, let me give you an example of this. I mean, you can have an, a scientific approach to grocery shopping, but that doesn't mean there's a science to grocery shopping. Sure. Right. <laughs> I, I get <laughs> and, and that I completely. That, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that's completely um, what's going on here. I mean, value is subjective, and it changes, right? Consumer preferences change. Right. We don't have buggy whips anymore, or slide rules, or all of that. How can something that is completely subjective, that, that basically runs commerce, which is value, hmm. how can we turn that to, into a science or something that's objective? I mean, I guess another classic example would be the, the new Coke and the old Coke. They did very scientific experiments, you know, blind taste testing. And you said, yeah, the new Coke was tasted better. Sure. But when they came out with it, the, the customers absolutely revolted. <laughs> and it had really nothing to do with the taste. It had more to do with the, the spiritual feelings for the brand, the, mm-hmm. you know, their attachment to the brand. So I reject this whole idea that business is science just because it contains numbers. And and that's from a recovering CPA, by the way. And that's the part that I was going to say is fascinating for somebody who obviously was diving into numbers and they have value, of course, but you brought up that term there, value, that it changes. Do you consider this something that people just feel it's comfortable because you can measure it, you can see it versus really taking into effect that human aspect or making it an art, so to speak? Yeah, I think numbers give us a, a false sense of security and the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. The first statisticians, think of the word, statistician means static. Well, mm-hmm. we humans aren't static. We're not pictures for videos. We're constantly moving. We're constantly learning. Things are changing around us, especially in commerce. And therefore, this can't be, this can't be a science. I mean, by definition, data, numbers, is about the past. Well, a lot of commerce is about the future. Mm. You know, I don't know about you, but I didn't, ex- I didn't expect to be Googling anything 15 years ago <laughs> right, or right. be on Facebook or LinkedIn. I mean, something that's new has no data attached to it. There was no data to go to the moon. We had never done it before, right? And, and since a lot of entrepreneurialism and a lot of market technology and, and enterprises based on innovation and dynamism, that can't have numbers associated with it until it's done. Well, and and I like what you said there, that numbers essentially have to do with the past versus what's happening in the future. Is that something that might be lost on a lot of people when it comes to this idea? 
I think so. And I think kind of what you said too about the art, the whole idea of art. I do think business is an art. I do think it has a soul. You know, our attachment to brands, our attachment to various companies, or even the local dry cleaner or barber that we use or whatever. And business strictly by the numbers is kind of like painting strictly by the numbers. It's, It's kind of crappy art. I don't know why this popped in my head, and maybe it doesn't have any relevance, but I watched this show. It's called Brain Games, and they did an experiment where they had the exact same cake, two different cakes, but they put one with a price of $5 and another with a price of like $30, and everybody was saying how much better the one that was $30 tasted. Exactly the same cake, and they would say things like, well, this one's dry and this one's moist. Does that point at all to what kind of what you're talking about here? That's certainly part of it. What we're willing to pay for something is absolutely amazing and (laughs) and high prices do tempt. And I mean, and this has been well studied amongst, you know, the wine industry. I'm in Northern California and they know for certain that you're going to enjoy in blind tests wine that that costs more, Mm -hmm. even though it may be the same. (laughs) And, And that is certainly part of it. I mean, there's, you know, and call it a snob appeal or whatever, but yeah, that is definitely part of it. And that's very difficult to scientifically measure like right. the law of physics. Right. Well, good. I think we're off to a good start trying to, as you said, chip away at that myth a little bit. How about this one? Uh, I found interesting, and obviously I looked into a little bit of this phrasing as well. There's no such thing as a commodity. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think I think this is an absolute reality. Hmm. I hear this word commodity, and if there was one word I could expurgate from business people's lexicon, it would be this word commodity. I mean, this is terrible because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe what you sell is a commodity, then guess what? It's going to be a commodity. There's right. you know, there's going to be no differentiation. You're not going to try and make it better. You're not going to try and improve the customer experience, but it can be so disproven with empirical evidence. Let me just give you an example. Look at bottled water. I mean, water is 71% of the Earth's surface, right. and the water companies, Pepsi and Coke and the other ones, they don't, they don't think this stuff is a commodity. I mean, they've come out with performance water mm-hmm. and all these different types of water. I mean, you know, they, they can differentiate water, which might explain why Evian is naive spelled backwards. But <laughs> let, let me give you a better example. Look at toilet paper. Procter & Gamble doesn't believe they're in any commodity categories they've figured out a way to differentiate toilet paper and paper towels. Hmm. Now, this is a company that gets something like 40 or 50% of its revenue from Walmart, which is, you know, pretty price sensitive customer. And yet we're not even out there buying the cheapest toilet paper. So when I hear professionals or other types of businesses say to me, well, what we sell is a commodity. And you hear this all over, Tim, I don't Mm -hmm. care what industry you're in. I look at them and go, really? You're less differentiated than toilet paper? I mean, I, I just don't buy it. I think, I think it's an excuse hmm. for bad marketing to say that we're in a commodity business. I mean, I think anything can be differentiated. Look at candles. You know, candles is a pretty mature industry. They've right. been around a long time. Yeah. But there, there's a lot of companies out there that have made it an experience. So now you're buying candles for different types of events, right? Religious events or birthdays or weddings or whatever. I think anything can be differentiated. I love that example of the candles because, as you said, I mean, that was something that was literally needed hundreds of years ago. And now, do we really need candles? No. But as you said, there's scents and there's, there's the decoration portion of it. There's the ritual aspect. I think that's a, a terrific example of what you're talking about. And with that in mind, then, and you mentioned, of course, these other companies that are well-known and how they're differentiating their products. Why would anyone mention their services or their products as being a commodity? Why even go there? I don't see the benefit. 
<laughs> there, there isn't. I mean, they hear okay. it from their customers a lot. <laughs> ah. uh, you know, oh, what you sell is a commodity. I mean, I'm still waiting for Lamborghini to figure out what they sell as a commodity. Unfortunately, <laughs> they haven't agreed with me yet. But it's kind of crazy. But I think in some ways, it does let businesses off the hook. Like, it, oh, it's a commodity. The customers don't value this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you one example. We hear this amongst accountants a lot okay. because accountants, they do tax returns. And they say, well, nobody values a tax return. You have to do it because, you know, otherwise you go to jail, right? So you're doing it to stay out of jail. Well, economists have a term for this. It's called a negative good. But if you think about the number of negative goods that we buy on a daily basis, there's a lot of them. We buy prescription drugs. We buy gas, Mm -hmm. toilet paper, insurance. There are a lot of negative goods. And my comment is, do you buy the cheapest prescriptions? Do you always buy generic? I I bet you don't even buy generic aspirin. It's probably Excedrin or some other brand. Now, aspirin's aspirin, according to the FDA. They can't alter it. Hmm. And yet we still buy branded aspirin. So we don't buy the cheapest things, even of negative goods. And so this is why I think that all products and services, I don't care what it is, are differentiatable. And to say that that you're a commodity is basically a cop-out for lousy marketing. Well, there you go. There's no such thing as commodity is a reality. So if uh, you are thinking that way, Ron Baker here says uh, you might want to think otherwise. And again, good examples, I think, of showing people why that is a reality and that they shouldn't fall into that trap, so to speak. And Tim, just let me provide one, uh, not solution, but one idea, thought experiment that people can use to differentiate themselves. And, And this comes from Richard Branson, and I think it's pretty good. Before Richard and Branson will invest in a new line of business, he'll ask his executives, tell me 10 things that you never hear about this industry. Hmm. So for instance, in the airline, when he, before he moved into airlines, you know, he heard, well, the food's great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always feel refreshed after my flight. Right. It's such a joy driving to the airport. And he, he used these things that you never heard to differentiate his experience. So they have masseuses on the plane. They'll send a limo to pick you up if you're flying in business class or, or first class. They have showers at the destination so you can take a shower and refresh yourself uh, after a transatlantic flight, things like that. There are all sorts of ways to differentiate if you just think out of the box and think creatively from the customer experience perspective. I think that's an excellent piece of advice, the idea of what don't you hear uh, when you talk about this product service. I think that can help a lot of people out. So let's go to another one. We have a couple more to get to here. And uh, this one is economic transactions are zero sum. What do you think about that? You know, this is the probably the biggest myth. This would be my top all-time myth. Really? This would be number one. Yeah, I deplore this idea that economic transactions are zero-sum, like it's, like it's poker or sports. You know, sports and politics and poker, that's all zero-sum, mm-hmm. right? Somebody wins, somebody loses. Sure. Economic transactions don't happen that way. If you went to Starbucks this morning and you spent $4 on a latte, it was because that latte was worth more to you than $4. It wasn't worth $4. It had to be worth more than $4 because otherwise you would have stayed home and just made a cup of coffee for maybe a dime. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say you didn't enjoy the cup of coffee at Starbucks <laughs> 40 times more than you, but you know, context determines what you're willing to pay. So, sure. hey, I'm running late for work. I, I drive through Starbucks. But the point is, it's not a zero-sum transaction. And this is my problem with my old profession in accounting. We have this view of the world that debits equal credit. So when Starbucks books that transaction, they book the $4 as a sale and they you know, take in cash. 
when I go home and book it on my home accounting system, I'm going to you know, book it as $4. But what gets lost is the fact that it had to be worth more than $4. Maybe it was worth $5 to me. Where's that extra dollar go? Well, that's the wealth in the economy. That's how we create wealth because transactions are not based on equality. They're based on inequality. Starbucks wants your four bucks more than they want their coffee and vice versa. That's why, Tim, if you ever thought about it, and, and it's very interesting, when you buy something like a cup of coffee, you notice how there's that double thank you moment mm-hmm. that happens at the, at the cashier? Right. You know, right. they thank you and then you thank them because <laughs> you're both walking away a winner. So any economic transaction that's not fraud or duress or, sure. you know, something illegal is a win-win. Both sides have to think they're winning. Otherwise, the transaction wouldn't take place. And so I think this whole zero-sum mentality, like it's politics or it's a sports game, is very, very destructive. When your customer buys something from you, they're actually making a profit too. And we don't think about it in those terms. When we talk about profit, we talk about the seller's profit, but economists know that customers make a profit too. And to your point there, I've seen where people talk about all types of trade are by definition a positive sum. Would you agree with that phrasing? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's definitely a positive. So it's, it's sometimes called a positive sum game. It's not a zero sum game. Definitely a positive sum. I mean, this kind of goes back to even Adam Smith. He didn't use the term win-win, mm-hmm. but he did say both sides to a transaction sure. benefit. And they have to, otherwise the transaction wouldn't take place. With even that basic idea there, why do you think the belief of a zero-sum game even persists when it comes to the business side? And you say it's this biggest myth that you really would want to get rid of. Why does it exist if it seems so basic to a lot of people? Because I don't think the the positive-sum game is intuitive. Whether you believe in evolution or (laughs) creationism or whatever, but our you know, our ancestors, if I got to the berries before you, that means there were less for you. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, so there's something very primitive in our brain that scarcity is real, right? I mean, if we, you know, if I shoot the bison and then you don't have the bison and the economic transactions don't happen that way. Like for instance, this is one of the problems with how we measure the trade deficit. The trade deficit sounds like it's some evil boogeyman, but I always ask people, let's assume for a moment that China comes up for the cure with the cure for cancer. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that's completely possible. Would we, would we not buy it because it would add to the trade deficit? Would that mm. make us better off? That's sure. crazy. Yeah. Forget the trade deficit. You know, this goes back to people trade, not government. So economic transactions benefit me. So no matter where I buy the good or service in the world, if I'm benefiting, that's the only thing that matters. But I think it's counterintuitive to answer your question. I, it, sure. we, our minds are, are hardwired, I believe, for zero-sum thinking. You know, you eat more of the pizza and I get less. <laughs> I've been there. I've, I understand the idea of zero-sum. <laughs> That's why your mom makes you cut the cake, right? And, and uh, you uh, have to split the cake with your brother. So you, you measure it and make sure it's half and half. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's a little bit different uh, when we're talking about the economic side of things. So hopefully people can get out of that mindset. I want to get to the last one, though, as we are uh, getting close to our time. And I thought, you know, people might take a little double take when they hear this one, at least in my view. Profits are an index of altruism. What do you think? I think that's reality. Mm -hmm. And I know it is completely uh, counterintuitive to say that profit is some type of an index of altruism, but altruism means other directed. And nobody goes into a store to please the owner right? You go into the store for your own self-interest to get the cup of coffee, to get a 
a prescription or whatever. And profits are an index that the business is serving your self-interest. They're putting your interests first before their interests. I think the late Senator Wellstone, in fact, he once said, an industry that makes exorbitant profits off sickness, misery, and the illness of people, and that's obscene. He said that about the big pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, wait a minute. That's like arguing that farmers make profits from our hunger. Mm, farmers right. keep us from being hungry. Pharmaceutical companies hopefully keep us well, mm. you know, keep us from being sick or maybe prevent surgeries or other intrusive medical procedures. So profit is an index that businesses are serving the interests of their customers. They're putting their customers' interests first. Sure. And I think the other thing that's really interesting about profit I give this thought experiment out to groups that I speak to. I say, look, if you think about the three factors of production, you know, you pick up any economics book and you'll see land, labor, capital. And if you think about the income that each one of those factors of production produces, like land and buildings produces rent hmm. and, you know, labor produces salaries and wages right. and capital produces interest, dividends, capital gains. I ask the audience, and, and sometimes these are really smart, you know, MBA type business people. I say, where do profits come from? Hmm. And I get that staring <laughs> ovation. You know, you get that RCA dog look. You know, everybody cocks their head and they'll say things like, well, from customers or from entrepreneurship or from value or, the, you know, all sorts of. But the actual fact of the matter is profits come from risk. Hmm. They're not a predetermined return. Right. It's not like putting your money into T-bills. Even a company like Apple that comes out with an iPod or a, a tablet or something is taking an enormous risk. There's no guarantee. Sure. There's never a guarantee because we can't control what consumers are going to value on any given day. Profits come from risk. And therefore, if, if somebody's taking risks and putting their resources at risk to serve others, then I do believe that that is an index of altruism. Do you think that's an idea though that will really ever catch on, especially as you said, areas where we're talking about needs, so hospitals or doctors in general, food. Do you think that's just going to be a really tough sell for the average person? And does it matter if the average person yes. believes that? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I actually do because again, kind of like the zero sum mentality, I believe this is so counterintuitive. Right. When we hear profits, you know, we think of big evil companies, the oil companies are making windfall obscene. We have all these words for obscene profits. And it's like, well, I would just like to see the same logic applied to like say movie stars or sports stars, or even somebody that sells their house. If somebody sells their house 10 times what they paid for it, we pat them on the back. Right. We don't run around and say, well, that's an obscene profit. But somehow when it's in a corporation, it seems obscene because they're obviously exploiting us. Well, they're not exploiting you because I still contend there's that double thank you moment. Nice way to kind of bring that all together and tie that in. Uh, as always, Ron, some excellent information as well as the examples you give. I think that really helps the listeners understand what exactly you're talking about. A lot of times these concepts can be a little tougher to gauge, especially when you're talking about those myths and realities. So thanks again for coming on and sharing all that with us. Thank you for having me, Tim. Really appreciate it. That will wrap it up here on Moving Up the Ladder. Again, another edition of Myth versus Reality, talking about some business beliefs with Ron Baker. Again, he's the radio host of The Soul of Enterprise, also the founder of Verisage Institute, always brings his quality opinions to the show, and we love hearing the examples he gives our listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at LJN Radio, you can shoot us an email, ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter, at the LJN. And of course, feel free to check out all of our episodes on iTunes, or at ljnradio.com. Once more, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody. 